welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumseh Sequetman territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetman Ulu, although I am calling in today from Algonquin Anishinaabek. And today's text, Tomorrow When the War Began, takes place in a fictional community in Australia. Joe and I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first peoples and the traditional owners and custodians of the land and waterways on which this story is set and adaptations are filmed, and we honor and pay our respects to elders past and present. I really like the way that they do it in Australia. Yeah, I kind of do too. I kind of do too. I'm trying to embrace it. I was trying to figure out what you do in Australia when you don't know the specific Mm -hmm. nation. Right. I don't think we have any kind of national established protocol on this here, but there's not even a sort of common practice. Mm -mm. And in Australia, if there's like conflict over whose territory it is traditionally, or you don't know, you use this more general one. Um, So thank you very Mm -hmm. much to the uh, Indigenous Affairs Australia website for teaching me that today. There we go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the past, we've done it where we will say where the text was shot right yes. and i think part of the problem with that is that we're talking about technically two different productions yes exactly and even then it's like a little bit nebulous like i gather that they filmed some things on sound stages and then some things actually out in the bush and you know i think uh they repurposed a, a small town and made it up to look like this fictitious war we location that the text is set in but Brenna we're talking around it what are we actually discussing today so today we're looking at tomorrow when the war began Joe which is the first book in the tomorrow series by John Marston and I think it's like seven books mm-hmm heptology yeah is hept seven I didn't look it up before the show <laughs> <laughs> I know hex is six but sept is also seven so then I got confused anyway all this oh, to say mm. Mm, there's a bunch of books and um <laughs> so so many books because this one ends and you're just like well that what? can't be the end of the story surely <laughs> <laughs> and it's a hugely popular series in australia for young people this book is like regularly named sort of one of the best books for young people they sold in just the first five years of this book's publication joe it sold three million copies wild how many people even are there in australia <laughs> a few more than that but yeah i mean that is a good old number it's wild it's been voted australia's favorite australian book in several polls and in fact outside of australia it's beloved too in the year 2000 the swedish government decided that this book was the book most likely to inspire a love of reading in young people and so they financed the printing of it and distribution to every teenager in the country yeah. Interesting connections between uh, our recent discussion on Stolen in Sweden and now Australia, which is where we seem to be spending about a quarter of our <laughs> podcast time these days. But this is in part thanks to Miriam, who also recommended this text. It's a bit, I think it might be a bit of a gentle cop out on our part, insofar as this is also an English language country that is outside of North America or Europe. Really? Um, and so it gives us a little bit of international flair without adding the additional layer of translation. Yeah, But you know, let me tell you what the book's about, Joe, and then we'll get into all of it, because mm-hmm. I I feel like there's a lot here, and there's also, 
And also somehow not? Yes. <laughs> somehow not, yes. Okay, so the book is the story of Ellie Linton and her friends Homer, Lee, Kevin, Corey, Robin, and Fiona. And this group of teens is sort of at the cusp of adulthood. They're all going into... I think it's the summer before their last year of school, so they're waiting to see what's going to happen next. Some of them want to go traveling and take a gap year. Some of them want to go to university. There's like, there's a lot of different experiences here, and the friends are not actually all super close. Some are closer mm -hmm. than others. It's kind of like, there's a level at which this is six random kids from the same small town, basically. I do really like that it's essentially, hey, we're going to go on a camping trip, but we need to bolster the numbers to reassure our parents. <laughs> so let's bring in people we tangentially know and or have spoken to in the last decade. This is also a cautionary tale about acquaintanceships, though, because, man, if you don't know people well and you end up in this particular situation, like, good luck. <laughs> Look, we're not saying be careful about who you go cottaging with, but if that is your jam, yeah, just make sure that you bring somebody who has survival skills or can shoot a gun or is really <laughs> good at medicine. Like, choose your friend group carefully. That's what this book says. Because basically what happens is they go off on this camping trip. They're gone for a few nights. One night, Ellie sees all of these planes flying overhead. And she's mm -hmm. like, well, that's weird because we're in rural Australia. Huh, strange. And then all this to say, uh, when they reemerge into the world from their camping trip, uh, the world appears to have ended without them. There's been some kind of massive invasion of yes. the country starting in their community, it seems. And all of the people who weren't them uh, are either dead or have been taken into this prison camp. They've taken the right. fairgrounds of the town and turned it into a prison camp. Yes. And to be clear, it is not aliens, which I'm still not quite sure why I thought it was that. <laughs> but no, it's just um, Burnett's good old fashion racism well it's interesting right because the book is not explicitly clear about who the invaders are we're no. told that none of the kids speak the language even there's one of the six who speaks like eight languages and they mm -hmm. don't understand the language the invaders are using yes which i think i mean i also when i heard that i was like oh aliens then because mm -hmm. you know as if there's not like significantly more than eight languages in the world <laughs> But yeah, the TV and film adaptations are very explicit that these are mm. invaders from some sort of Asian country. I read one review that makes the argument that these are North Korean invaders. Sure. Let's say that to appease our racist guilt. <laughs> exactly. Another, another makes the argument that it's Indonesians, but like it's not explicit in the book. Um, mm -hmm. That said, well, we'll talk a little bit about John Marsden not distancing himself from this book exactly, but saying that the climate, the political climate in Australia right now, he wouldn't have written this book yeah. if he was living in the current political climate. It, it is interesting. And yes, I, I want to have a more sustained conversation, so I'm not going to derail things right now. But it is interesting to me that we have to have these kinds of conversations. It's not as though this book was written in the 70s. No, no, 1993, just to be clear. 1993. So <laughs> yeah. it's a little yeah. bit wild because at one point we do reference that the kids have recently read Z for Zachariah. And yeah. that was the vibe I was getting from this. Like, even some of the language in the book that Marston is using, it felt to me old fashioned. Like, this is a book that is beloved because it's a classic. And it's not. This is, a. I mean, obviously, 1993, we're talking now 30 years but yeah. it still feels older than that to me in certain regards 
Yeah, I think part of it is the early 90s are a hard era to to signpost if Mm -hmm. like nobody has cell phones, for example, right? So all of a sudden you're like, I don't know, is this 1957? Is this (laughs) 1996? I don't know. Um, Anyway, all this to say when they reemerge, it's sort of a slow discovery. Like they realize the pets and the livestock have died and then they they eventually figure out what's going on. And Mm -hmm. they have to make a decision whether to just try to survive Yep. Or to try to fight back. There's arguments mm-hmm. that go back and forth. They end up making a decision to take out a main bridge to try to, like, have an impact on this war in some way. Right. It's because their community was targeted because it has direct access to a significant waterway. So the yeah. invaders have been basically coming in on ships and then using this bridge as a gateway into the larger part of the country. Yeah. And so we end up with a success at the end in terms of them like managing to blow up the bridge, but it's tempered by the fact that like we leave the book, Corey really needs medical help. Kevin's going to surrender in order to try to get that help for Corey. So like there's like a good success for the kids, but there's Mm -hmm. also like what's going to happen next? (laughs) <laughs> and then we end on basically a cliffhanger because we don't know what's going to happen next. And then that turns out that's because there's like 42 more books. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or if you're the film of the TV show, it's just a cliffhanger. And then you hope to come back and continue adapting the source material. But you never do. No, you never, no. ever do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a few things I want to talk about here. Okay. It's very interesting to me that we have this conversation about invasion in the context of australia and we never talk about indigeneity no so lee is chinese and we Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that but not really and homer is greek i think we talk much more about the greek refugee parent experience with homer than we do about any other sort of Mm -hmm. racialized or i guess Okay, I guess here's where I'm getting stuck at even how to talk about this, Joe. Like, okay, we have this invasion. We have this sort of diverse group of kids. Sort of. We have almost no curiosity amongst the kids about who is invading, which I find so interesting. Like, I get mm-hmm. it's like day-to-day survival stuff, but they have this really interesting conversation at one point where I can't remember what her name is, but the one who's really religious Oh, that would be Robin. That's Robin. Okay, so Robin is like, I kind of get where an invader would be coming from. We have a lot of space. We don't Mm -hmm. let people into this country. A lot of resources. Other places Mm -hmm. are have-nots and so on. Yep. And everybody's like big mad at her for saying that. Like, props to Robin for speaking the truth. Um, Sure. Everybody's really mad at her for saying that. But like, even that conversation never goes anywhere. And I just feel like, I know that it's a survival story first and foremost. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, I do feel like there's a lack of curiosity at the core of these six teenagers that I find a little bit confusing. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if part of this is Marsden being wary about giving too many specifics for fear that if the book is successful, which it obviously was, then all of a sudden he's immediately dating a kind of geopolitical... Mm conflict right it's like how all of our movies right now in 2023 it's either russia because russia is our enemy again because (laughs) you know putin sucks or it's nebulous foreign entities that we have 
like you said, zero curiosity about naming or exploring. It's just like, they're just villains. They wear black hooded masks and we can't really identify where they might be coming from. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. I think there's a a tactical choice there, right? Mm -hmm. And just choosing to do something that's going to keep you relevant, I guess. I think in the context of this, because we are in a settler state where this story is being told, and granted, I'm sure 1993 Australia was not having like Truth and Reconciliation Commission questions, just like 1993 Canada was not having those conversations. But Mm -hmm. to me, that is part of what dates the book so profoundly. It's like, right. Okay, here's an example. So it's like commemorative day or like commemoration day when this Mm -hmm. attack happens, right? Right. Which is objectively and explicitly a settler colonial event, right? Yep. Never, never is there any sort of parallel or analysis drawn. It's more like, oh, look at the irony. Our day of celebration is now a day of mourning. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of being like, oh, how interesting that on the day that the colonial power is embraced we are invaded do you know what i mean like am i making any sense no no you're you're making absolute sense and part of me just i mean (laughs) it's always challenging to have these kinds of politically sensitive conversations nowadays when we're looking at older texts because i just don't always feel like there was an interest or an inclination like yeah i don't know that this is marston willingly saying i'm absolutely not going to do that no although there's still these elements that are written in right where you're just kind of like but how are you not aware of some of the things that you're doing okay i want to i think this is a good spot to read that quote from marston joe because i think it really reflects exactly what we're talking about so mm-hmm this is from a Q&A that he did relatively recently. He says, I wouldn't write that book now, not because of a societal view, but because of my own horror at the way refugees have, who have come to Australia have been treated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Like, it implies a personal growth, like right. a, a coming to an awareness. But like, you know, I was reading about things like the white Australia policy mm-hmm. and stuff in preparation for this and like kind of looking at the the history particularly of panic around you know asian invaders in heavy quotation marks and it seems odd to me that marsden doesn't acknowledge that he's writing directly into that moment even in 1993 yeah i'm literally looking at statistics from the refugee council of australia website right now and the highest number of what are called boat arrivals that are either turned back or turned away or take back the peak numbers are occurring in and around 1995 so like a couple of years after this book is written is when the number of asylum seekers was at their highest in australia And I don't know if these numbers are significant compared to, say, you know, something that happened after like the Syrian refugee and the migration north into European countries or something. I don't know if this was overwhelming, but what I'm assuming is that these numbers were significantly higher at and around the time that Marston was writing this book. So you have to believe that it was part of the cultural dialogue that was happening in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I, I, this is exactly what I'm getting at. There's just something missing from the political context of the text. And it's, mm-hmm. it's reflected most explicitly in just the lack of curiosity that the kids display. But well, that and the fact that most of them are 
white, right? Yeah. Like they're from rural farming communities and a small town. And I can't help but wonder if it's like, these are true Australians. And I'm using immense scare quotes there. Yeah. Well, what's interesting too is, and we'll get to this as we talk about the adaptations today, but like we had adaptations of this come out in like 2010 and 2016, right? Mm -hmm. And those adaptations don't actually do any work to complicate any of this. <laughs> nope, they sure don't. And I found that astonishing, especially the 2016 version, because, you know, I'd been doing all this reading on like official Australian government websites about like truth and reconciliation and like mm -hmm. acknowledgement of country and all these concepts. And then I see this adaptation that in 2016 is just like, it just takes the whole thing as read. Yep, it's it's commemoration day and we're, you know, showing our farm goods and we're like the settler is settlers, whoever is settled and now we're invaded and we have no conversation about that. And it's mm -hmm. just, I mean, in fairness, I only watched the first three episodes. Maybe it gets better, but I'm just, I'm really interested in that. And I feel like it's a disservice to the book in some ways because there's actually nothing else about this book I want to talk about, Ooh. which isn't fair because I actually really enjoyed the reading of it. Okay. I totally did. I blitzed through it while I was camping. It was a great, like, lying in a hammock read because it is mm -hmm. rippy and it is interesting. And, you know, when the kids blow up the bridge, it's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. There are seriously draggy parts in it. But, you know, I feel the same way about most of the dystopian trilogies we read. So I'm not going to hold that too hard against it. Mm -hmm. But when I close the book and I take a breath, none of that is what I'm interested in discussing. And I'm not sure if that's unfair to the book or an artifact of just the passage of time or what, mm. but it's where I'm at. I would say a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B because, yeah, like I I think I actually like this a little bit less than you. I found mm -hmm. the draggy bits very draggy and I found Ellie to be a mildly frustrating protagonist if yeah. only because uh, I think I texted you and at one point it's basically a ooh I have feelings for Homer who is the kind of like outsider bad boy he gets in trouble at school and then also Lee who I've known for less time but he's so thought provoking and sensitive and it was basically uh, I just spent a lot of time rolling my eyes going I love every boy <laughs> the need to put a love triangle in the center of this story is really funny it's so YA like it's the tropiest right. thing about this book but it's 1993 so technically this is coming before the things that would make us roll our eyes like yeah. Divergent like Hunger Games and so on right it's very Katniss Everdeen it's it's mm -hmm. comically Katniss Everdeen considering it predates it by like over a decade <laughs> Well, I mean, Suzanne Collins never met a story she didn't like to rip off. So yeah, <laughs> obviously. True. Oh, now I know if she's read this one. <laughs> but I mean, I guess the other question that I want to have is why do you think people have responded so strongly to this mm. book? Because, you know, when we talk about something like Z for Zachariah, that's a classic, but it's not popular in this same way like it's not getting significantly translated over into other countries and being adopted by a whole school curriculum it doesn't have multiple adaptations so i'm curious why you think this one might have struck such a chord oh that's such a good question joe because i often feel like i would be a terrible like agent or publisher because i can't read a trend to save my life but mm -hmm. i do think that if you think about the literary landscape in 1993, 
we didn't have a lot of girl protagonists. We right. didn't have a lot of adventure stories that featured girls heavily. Mm-hmm. I could see from that perspective it being a really refreshing approach right. in that moment, potentially. And I agree with you that Ellie is a frustrating narrator, but I do also find her very human. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably an appealing aspect as well. Yeah. But you're asking really good and really important questions because, yeah, like it was, I think, 2010 when Sweden, like, or no, did I say 2000? Anyway, it wasn't 1993 when Sweden was like, <laughs> this is the book. So it took a while. Yeah. Obviously, it's resonating with young readers. Do you mm-hmm. think it has something to do with the maybe the huge amount of power and agency that young people have in this story? Like yeah. adults, one, one thing that's interesting about the TV adaptation is they really try to make the adults like. Oh my god! I people had, who have a role because, like, I in the book, no patience for it at all. I was just like, get these adults out of here. The whole point <laughs> of the book is that it's the kids have to save themselves. They have to yes. become agents. They have to grow up. Yeah, and instead we have this whole plotline with the parents like tricking the guards to break out of the prison to save mm-hmm. the kids, and it's like, oh, you missed the point of the book. Um, but it's like. That is something that's really attractive about this story is that right. the kids are so in charge and in control. It's slightly diverse for its time period, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I liked it, but I didn't school curriculum love it, you know? Right. I mean, one of the things I, I told you that I was kind of reading it in bursts. So I read mm-hmm. a bunch of it before Stolen, and then I had to prioritize Stolen because we were going to cover it first. And then I had to come back to it. And I fretted that I was going to forget because some of these characters read a little similar. I find the girls oh, yeah. actually quite similar. So every girl who isn't Ellie is confusing to me. <laughs> well, and and Fee, because she's the one who ends up in a kind of love square because she starts to fall for Homer. And also she's the sort of uppity up town girl who ends Mm -hmm. up like no one believes is going to be able to survive out in the bush because she gets her hair done and she wears makeup and this kind of stuff. And she surprises everybody. So I found those two very distinct, but yeah, like religious Robin Corey, I find utterly forgettable in every possible way, even though she's supposed to be Ellie's best friend. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. Like when she gets shot at the end of the book and the movie and the TV show and you're supposed to care. (laughs) It's like, I feel like I barely spent time with this character. Well, no. And that's, I mean, narratively, that's a choice Mm because literally any other character we would have cared about more than we care about Corey. Yeah. Except maybe her boyfriend, Kevin. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to circle back to my own leading question, which I think you already did a good job of answering, but when I worried that I wasn't going to be able to remember the book, you said, oh, well, because it's taught so often, there's actually a bunch of school guides that have, you know, questions and character bios and that kind of stuff. And I couldn't help but wonder if it's because even though we've been saying these characters aren't extremely racially diverse, I think Mm. that there's enough difference between them that young people could look at this and be like okay so chart fees transition from yeah. rich makeup girl to person who's willing to blow up the bridge and even rescues ellie when she freezes on the the big heist at the end and and do that kind of work like how do these people go from kids to adults and then also that question of is it okay to kill someone in order to protect yourself and at what point like what number does that stop at like 
to kill 10 people to save yourself, to kill 100 people to save you and your family. Like, I, I think those kind of moral questions, like the ethics mm. and morals of war and what happens during wartime can be very good fodder for classroom discussion. Yeah, you, I, as you're talking, I'm realizing just how teachable this book is, right? Because we literally chart Ellie's sort of reconciliation with her own strength and her mm -hmm. character growth. Like, I'm picturing the, do you remember drawing those plot charts on the board in high Absolutely. school? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's exactly it. You've nailed it. it. That is what this is. This is an immensely teachable book. The problem is that I'm looking at it from the lens of like, the thing I want to teach about is colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> and this book is giving me nothing. But if what I want to teach about is like, rising action and denouements and falling action and mm -hmm. like character studies and stuff you're right this book is perfect for all of that yeah and and i wonder if to circle back to marcin and then maybe we can move on to mm -hmm. the two adaptations i wonder if that's part of the things that he struggles with like it seems clear to me that in some ways he was writing this as a bit of a message book it's just that his message doesn't necessarily include the thing that we would have thought would be yeah. very obvious given Australia's issues with racism and refugees and their status even as like an island continent. Yeah. I think that's what makes the story interesting because you wouldn't expect anyone to ever try to invade Australia. And yet at the same time, there is that kernel that's planted in there that Marston seems disinterested or just unaware that he could be exploring it i kept wanting to in my brain totally unfairly compare it to the marrow thieves oh, okay because <laughs> the marrow thieves is another invasion narrative about True. a settler state and what really ends up happening is that the settlers band together right <laughs> in that narrative and it's i'm interested in in those kinds of stories and i think that ultimately the book isn't doing anything complicated enough for me. That right. doesn't mean that it's not worth reading. Because I think sure. that it is. I did it, as I say, it was a perfect, like, lying by the campfire novel to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it is, even in the draggy parts where there is a lot of kind of discussion around the campfire and, oh, some people are going to sneak away and we worry about them for 48 hours until they come back. There's still good-ish stuff in there. It's just, yeah. yeah, I find the beginning part where we're, introducing the teens, introducing the conflict, and then making our escape back to hell, and then the end bridge explosion to be the most exciting part. Totally. Yep. But it's, you know, yeah, it's a fast read. It's not difficult. No. Okay, well, why don't we switch over and talk about the movie and the TV show? Woohoo! How about a trip before we go back to school? We'll get a bunch of us together and go further up the river than we've ever been before. You can see Cobbler's Bay from here. What is this? Makeup? Omen, do you even know where we're going? There's a clearing up ahead. So beautiful out here. Let's do this again. Back here in the same place. The same people.
What is going on? Occupying forces have now taken several major coastal cities. Any idea whose army it is? It doesn't matter who they are because they're here now and we just got to deal with it. I don't know about you guys. I'm not too good at doing nothing. People are dying out there. Everything's a risk from now on. We know this country better than they do. We can use that to our advantage. We can go out there using hit-and-run tactics. We have to start acting like soldiers. Okay, so the movie comes out in 2010. It is written and directed by Stuart Beattie. I know him from a really terrible genre film called I, Frankenstein that he would later make. So this is the more successful of his two films. It stars Caitlin Stacy (laughs) as Ellie. Uh, And I will say part of the reason I think you like the TV show a little more. I I like the movie a little bit more, even though I do have some problems with some of the creative decisions. It's very we're making the movie more exciting by amping up the drama. But I really like Caitlin Stacy as an actor because I've seen her in things like Please Like Me, which is a fantastic Australian TV show. And she also has a really significant part in last year's horror movie Smile. So I just think she's a hugely compelling actress. So I think I went in with a lot of goodwill for her. I think that's fair. I, yeah, I just found, well, we'll talk about it more, but I honestly found it had this weird tension between like, yes, we're making it more exciting with more explosions Mm -hmm. and more kablamos, but the pacing (laughs) is way off. And I would, I kept, I literally kept falling asleep and having to go back. Anything that is not exploding in this movie, I found really boring. (laughs) (laughs) That is so surprising to me because even though I think the TV show, it's more dynamic in terms Mm -hmm. of the way that it's shot, like the camera is actually moving a lot more. I did find that the movie, because it's streamlined, you know, it's only an hour and 45-ish minutes, they have to cut a lot of the stuff where we're just kind of hanging around or we're doing excursions into the town. Whereas I found when I got to the TV show, it felt like they just added a bunch of extra crap into it to drag it out. (laughs) And I, I was just like, no, you don't need this like sure you could do with some of it but honestly the increased prominence of the adults like we're actually getting to know a little bit about the main villain who's in charge of the camp it was just all a big ooh, i don't know about this i think all of that is fair and also i don't know what to tell you i just found the movie really boring (laughs) (laughs) well i i should recognize that i also know two other actors in the movie so phoebe tonkin as fee she is in a bunch of like cw fare so i also knew her she's had quite a good career stateside and ashley cummings as robin you wouldn't ever know it but she's actually been in a couple of different horror properties as well she's a fantastic actress this movie does not let her do anything but that's fine that's fine i guess one of the things that i really noticed about the film is that as i said we're doing that classic ya semi-dystopian thing where we do introduce a lot more explosions. Like the sequence where we have to go and pick up Lee because he's been shot in the leg. So we take him in a garbage truck and this time our villains, our nameless, faceless villains, are literally chasing this garbage truck down the street for 
I want to say this is probably a good like seven to ten minute action sequence, but they are in like dune buggies that get trapped in the wiring of streetlights and we're exploding them into buildings. It is really big action sequences. Yes, and they are I they are fun. I will give the movie that all of that stuff is really, really fun. I just mm-hmm. I don't know if they've set up the narrative stakes to match how much more they've exploded things. Do you know what I mean? Like obviously uh-huh. The stakes are really huge, um, but sometimes it just felt like, and now we have to blow this thing up extra <laughs> because mm-hmm. we have budget. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, the the final bridge explosion, I thought, was incredibly well yes, done. They use really They good. use miniatures, like practical miniatures, which I really appreciated because this movie was expensive. It cost $27 million Australia, which is not insignificant. It wasn't successful, which is why we don't get any more sequels. <laughs> But it looks expensive, you know, like you can tell that they did spend some money on the action sequences, particularly. But you're right, I think part of the problem is that the kids just kind of go from naive at the beginning, as you would expect. And then they have like this one sort of significant encounter with the villains of the piece. And we make no effort to explore why they're there, what they're doing, who they are. Uh, it, it's very much evil Asian villain, which is yeah, super uncomfortable. And then the kids are basically radicalized and militarized by the end of this movie. Like we're setting up for a sequel, but it's basically them with guns standing on the bluffs, <laughs> being like, "Dun dun dun dun, here we go, we're off to war." The Defense Department has confirmed Australia's radar defenses were compromised overnight during multinational war games in Northern Territory. Just keep an eye on each other. Ellie's been there before, Mrs Tuckham, heaps of time. Uh, we'll be back before you know it. <laughs> What's happened? I think we might be at war. They've got tanks and assault rifles. We've got something for shooting rabbits. Things have changed. We need to change too. We need to be ready for anything. Life is full of surprises. Run! No one is coming to this country's rescue. It's on its own. Run! They're not going to stop until they've killed us. We're going to arm ourselves with anything we can get our hands on. The heavier, the better. I'm just so scared. We all are. It's a suicide mission. Nothing will go wrong. So, Brenna, let's switch over then and talk about the TV show. So it's six episodes. It comes out in 2016, and it's directed by Brendan Maher. And uh, I guess the most significant person out of this, I didn't recognize any of these actors except for Molly Daniels as Ellie. And we saw her previously because she's the female lead in Ronnie Chang. Oh, I knew she looked familiar. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. I love that. So, folks, as we said, this is fairly similar. The big significant difference is that we are stretching this out to nearly six hours of runtime. So we have a ton more adults. We're 
actually kind of trying to explore who the villains or the antagonists Mm -hmm. of the piece are. But again, I would say not super successfully. Mm -mm. I'll confess, I watched the first episode and then I knew you were watching the first couple. So I jumped to the sixth one to see how it ended. And it is interesting because we shoot Corey out of order. So she gets shot, I believe, in the fifth episode. And then she's taken to the hospital where her mom is a nurse and her mom is like, she needs better medical care. Can we please move her? And the big bad is like, ha ha ha, no. Oh, so that's the cliffhanger is will Corey live or die? Uh, It's will she live or die? But also we managed to rescue the parents because they are actually being moved to a new location like the threat from the book and the movie gets followed up on, which is that anyone who is taken as a political prisoner will be moved into like detainment camps in a more Mm. like specific other area. So they end up having to do this like a big explosion. It's it's actually quite a bit smaller than the film because they don't have the same budget, but they do it as part of like a jail heist. But interestingly enough, Brenna, I did want to highlight that Corey, as we said, she's not like the most memorable of character. She's just really Ellie's best friend, but she is played by Madeline Madden. And this is the niece of the director of Jasper Jones. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we do actually have an indigenous presence in this film, although from what I saw, I didn't see a ton of addressing the fact that like, oh, within this group of six kids, we now actually have an indigenous figure. It certainly doesn't come up in the first three episodes. Okay, let me give you my good and bad for the TV series. Sure. I really liked the chemistry between the kids more in the TV series, and I found okay. them more watchable as a cast. And I think that that is why I found the pacing okay, because okay. I didn't mind when they were just, like, hanging, hanging out. out. Yeah, I hate, hate, hate adding the parents in, mm-hmm. because it then, then, obviously, getting back to their parents becomes the central focus, right. instead of, like, this idea of like taking control of their own lives and being agents in the war themselves Mm -hmm. that takes a back seat to the need to get back to their parents and that makes sense right i get it and i hate it well i think you're fundamentally changing the entire premise of the text and i don't know if this would be considered a modernization decision in Mm. terms of the adaptation right is it unrealistic to say that kids nowadays wouldn't do this right where they would focus on being reunited with their families as opposed to being a little bit more self-sufficient maybe that's it i thought that it almost takes many segments of this show out of the world of ya and like Mm -hmm. plops them straight in like primetime drama which you know maybe that's an audience expansion strategy as well Mm-hmm. Maybe there's not a lot here for adults if they don't have the plotline, or maybe that's what they think. I don't know. <laughs> I also really liked that we got some additional context to the fact that there is this massive invading force. Right. But my caveat there is I hated every choice they made about it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. It's still very people who look different or people who are not from Australia equals bad. And yes. And considering that this is now 2016, I found it honestly irresponsible. I agree with you. I think that there's a couple of things that make 
very little sense in the context of 2016. One is like very little acknowledgement of colonial relationships, Mm -hmm. settlers, the fact that we have an indigenous cast member and that still doesn't become a significant issue unless it's happening in episode four and five and we missed it. Like that's to me a problem. Mm -hmm. Also, likewise, wouldn't there be some sort of conversation around Lee and racism like a character like Kevin, who's mm-hmm. kind of a dick, like wouldn't oh. that come up with him when he's like questioning people's patriotism? Like that's weird to me too. Yeah. And then I think in general, just the fact that we have this series coming out in 2016 and, and it doesn't want to comment on any of those politics at all. It doesn't even mm-hmm. want to address, like I think that ironically, maybe not even ironically, frustratingly, the conversation about like we have so much and other people have so little actually gets the least play in this adaptation. Yeah, it it actually feels like the TV show is more afraid of addressing mm-hmm. that. Like it it feels deliberately conscious of ooh we don't want to go there because that's too political. And it's partly underscored or maybe just made worse by the fact that like we have the character of Fee is now not just a city kid, but a rich kid. Like, mm-hmm. there's your house porn for the oh episode, my by the goodness. way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gorgeous. But as a result, like, we have this character whose dad is this, like, extremely powerful corporate lawyer. And we're, we're still, we're now we're not saying anything about class as well. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. in the book and the film, they're all basically of the same socioeconomic class. Maybe Lee a little bit less, maybe Homer a little bit less. But generally speaking, like, none of these kids are extremely wealthy. You add in a wealthy character and you still don't talk about class. It's, it's weird. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed the watching of the TV show substantially more than I enjoyed the watching of the film. But I am also more disappointed in the tv series than i am in the film if that makes sense it it does and i have a question that i'm not sure you can answer but i'm hoping you can because you watched more of it and some of the Mm. early stuff where they were laying more of the foundational work Mm -hmm. i can't i can't recall if it was fee's family or maybe chris's family i think chris because we see at one point there's a, a very overly drawn out sequence where he runs around his giant house mm-hmm. kind of looking because there's jets going by and he watches one of them explode and that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. if i wasn't mistaken i think one of them their parent is a major politician like possibly the prime minister of australia or something did i hear that incorrectly you did. So Fee and Chris are siblings in this oh, adaptation. Okay. And it's her dad and he's a corporate lawyer, but like at an extremely high level. So he's away when the war begins because mm. he's negotiating this major deal. And speaking of backstories that never get resolved, like Chris is a drug addict, apparently. Right. Okay. Why and to Whereas what end? The film just makes him a really stupid pothead, and he's yeah. just like, "This is a different choice, but also not a good one." <laughs> he's like on pills when he gets picked up by the baddies, okay. and his dad is like, "Let's save him. He's just a child." Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> but I think that they're supposed to be making a point that, like, this guy who has spent all this time away from home like trying to earn all this money Mm -hmm. and have all these material things but when it comes down to it like there's nothing none of it matters and he hasn't (laughs) been with his children like i think that's the point of it but um it 
it doesn't get fleshed out particularly well. Yeah, and this is part of the problem with a show that had clear designs for continuing. Like, Mm -hmm. the first season of six episodes adapts more or less the first book. But as we said, there's seven books, so they clearly would have continued on and they might have done more significant character work. They might have unpacked some of the racial or political connotations in subsequent seasons. But I'm also hesitant to give anyone a pass for that because you don't make a season of TV anticipating you're going to have future ones. You always say, okay, well, there's a chance we could only be a one and done. We need like, you know how there's like great German words for everything. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a German word for like the specific kind of disappointment that I feel with these kinds of streaming things where like <laughs> there may i know this wasn't streaming this was on broadcast tv but like where you make six episodes hoping you get another season but you mm-hmm. never do and that right. sort of sense of unfinished business that permeates yeah. these these shows like we talk about this i feel like we talk about this now every time we look at a show because so often we're looking at shows that either don't get renewed or we don't know yet when we're watching them mm-hmm. i don't know i guess I guess nothing's going to change until the streaming landscape changes in some way. But it is very frustrating for audiences. It is very frustrating for audiences. And particularly when you start to take note of the conversation, you really start to hear a bunch of people saying, well, I'm not even going to give my time to that until Mm -hmm. I know for sure that it's going to have another season or it gets resolved in a satisfactory way. And I think part of that is that it becomes... You know, the catch-22, right? Where if nobody watches something, it's going to be cancelled for sure. But also, yeah, it's the risk you run. This this actually isn't a new thing. We had a lot of these debates during network TV days as well. It's just that it feels like streamers weren't in the habit of doing it. They were actually being more generous. And now they're actually starting to act like the days of yore. And it seems like we've all forgotten what it felt like to have our favorites be in danger of being canceled. No, it's true. And I like once upon a time, I had a lot of one season box sets of shows that I thought needed more time. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I just think I don't know. I I think because well, we've talked about this before, and it's way off topic. But like, to me, that was the point of streaming services. And if they're not going to give space for things to grow, then... What are you good for? I might as well go back to paying for one cable package instead of 98 streamers. <laughs> well, let me see if I can bring it back to tomorrow before the war began. I feel like my disappointment here, like, I don't think either one of these adaptations is perfect. I don't think that the book is... Like, I think it's okay, but I don't think it's great. I'm surprised by the accolades. But... What's frustrating specifically about the TV show is not what they don't do in that first season. It's I would have been interested to see what an adaptation beyond the first book looks like because we just can't get there. And clearly there's more story to be told and I can't help but wonder if the story becomes more complicated, more interesting. Like it could just be more of the same where the kids become gorillas and they fight back and they gather more forces and they get older and have relationships i imagine it's probably that but at the same time it's boring to see the same one version of a story endlessly adapted it's like watching spider-man's origin story over the course of 25 years 85 times agreed 100 (laughs) percent And they haven't fixed that problem either, Joe. No, (laughs) no, they have not. Stop it with the origin stories is what I'm saying. Let's do a YA bingo. All right. Bingo. Not a good bingo.
All right, so I'm going to give it to Coincidental Classes, Joe, for that Zed for Zachariah reference that I didn't yep. see coming and totally made me actually, like, cackle. Right, me too. <laughs> um, house porn for Fee's home in the TV adaptation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And honestly, like, just a lot of the farms at the beginning of the film adaptation, too. Like, they they're really do big. a good job. Of, oh, they're big. And they do a good job of setting up this kind of, like, this is a bucolic space that bad people will ruin. <laughs> right, of course, yes. <laughs> Ruining our livelihood. Uh, a lot of borrowed time situations because we have you know okay you're gonna go on this mission for 24 hours and if you're not back it could mean something terrible obviously like multiple road trips none of them much Mm -hmm. fun but no (laughs) but multiple road trips though i will say it's frustrating in both texts how easy it is for them to get back to hell when they need to because the story deliberately says it's really hard to get there and then they're just going out willy-nilly you know oh we just went and got some food and came back and you're like what (laughs) i read this blog post about a guy who like tries to track all the places in the in the book when i was looking for territorial information Mm -hmm. and apparently that story that comes up about the hermit who like hid right. out in in hell is a true story yes. um and so the guy who who did this blog uses that and the place where that guy hid out as like kind of orient the text around oh interesting okay and when he goes on a hike he can't get down to hell where they get in and out of like <laughs> willy-nilly for most <laughs> of the book so it's like okay interesting okay mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, I've got the inclusion flip for Good. Madeline Madden as Corey in the TV show. Good. And I'm going to say good friendships because even though I don't always love the relationship between Ellie and Corey, I think over time, a lot of these pairings do end up justifying their friendship. Yeah. But I'm simultaneously giving hollow romances because I don't buy any of this nonsense between Fee and Homer. I'm going to go for a dead body, dead family because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's lots of that um sure. and i think i think the book is better when they stay dead <laughs> fair fair uh lots of musicality and montages in both of these adaptations as well yeah i agree completely and i like actually the soundtrack to both which surprised me yeah i think i mean there's an element in the book that ellie is the chosen one in a very literal sense like she mm-hmm. is chosen to do the writing for the group yes so I think that's worth raising. Yeah, I, I will admit I didn't like that as a narrative construct because the way it's written, it would have been so much more brief and it's filled with way too many anecdotes and asides for how little paper and pen <laughs> she would have had and so on. Like, Yeah, it does. It's a conceit that does not make sense. No. Like, no. I don't know. It was a little frustrating. I'm <laughs> just like, wow, a lot of detail for this just hanging out right and everything verbatim. Agreed, 100%. Um, um, I guess the only other one I had was aged up because none yeah. of the people in the movie are convincingly teenagers. Agreed, 100%, except for Robin, and then that makes Robin look way younger than everybody else. Oh my god, it's like, who is the 10-year-old that we're bringing around with these 25-year-olds? <laughs> that's exactly what it feels like. It's really, yeah, we're with central casting. <laughs> well, all that to say, we did manage to get a single diagonal line. Mm-hmm. I just realized I want to throw in an authentic voice, and I'm sorry, James Marsden, but you don't you don't write teenage girl particularly no. specifically. 
I sent you a screenshot where <laughs> Ellie jokes that, you know, she was touching Lee and she was like, oh, I'm such a slut. I was just like, uh, excuse you? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Vetoed, even 1993 vetoes this. <laughs> All right. Well, Brenna, let's say that we have done a complete disservice to this book. Or if people maybe want to talk about Alana, the first adventure, how would they get in touch? I'm almost certain we've done a disservice to this book, Joe, um, because there's just no way we've missed something. This book is beloved. We have missed something. I'm sure of it. So please let us know what it is. You can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, and that's Gray with an A. And if you have something longer, you can find us on email, HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, I know I alluded to this earlier in the episode, Mm -hmm. but I just want to put it on, like, recording. And I'm very sorry for this episode from an editing standpoint and listeners <laughs> i'm literally in a tornado warning <laughs> as i'm recording this and like trees are coming down and the dog is freaking out so just like joe's gonna do his best with the editing and i'm sorry <laughs> uh but also let no one ever doubt your commitment to podcasting <laughs> my commitment to the bit is deep joe it's deep <laughs> this is true you're not even in a tornado warning you've just got like some weird sound effects and like a dog <laughs> There was one point when you were talking, Joe, and a tree was literally coming down outside, and I was like, it's going to be fine. I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, Brenna Brenna might be going down to like a cellar in a moment or two, but um, yeah, I guess one final thing, Brenna, what are we reading next week? (laughs) Who cares? The world is ending. Well, it's just that we're being invaded by (laughs) questionably racist people. No way, what? (laughs) We are reading Piglet uh, by Clementine Beauvais. And Joe, you're going to like the voice on this one. It's mm-hmm. it's fun. Um, and then we're looking ahead to Heartstopper Season 2. I know we have big Heartstopper fans in the audience. So I just wanted to give them a shout out that we will be covering it right after the release date. So if you get on top of it, you'll, you'll have us to listen to right away. There we go. Yeah. So right. things to look forward to. Yeah. And, you know, provided that I am not in oz right <laughs> we'll get right on that just put on those red shoes you know what to do <laughs> did you know there's silver in the book joe i did know that yes also how have we never covered wizard of oz <laughs> oh yeah we should probably do wizard of oz maybe not when i'm in a tornado zone there we go yeah we'll let you recover first <laughs> thank you all right everybody uh if there's a next time i will see you on the page <laughs> and i will see you on the screen with new co-hosts <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. so this is the first book of i think a seven book series john john why did i just call you john i literally just called you john because we were talking it's, about john it, no it's because i'm looking at john marston's name <laughs> so we do right, take that take whole part again Joe, I want to record an apology to our listeners if they can hear this thunderstorm if you can't edit it out later. Just FYI. (laughs) You can stick this in. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Even, okay, here's an example. Oh my. Can you hear the thunder and lightning in here? Um, Ooh, exciting. We're actually in a tornado watch. Um, I know. It seems early. Anyway. Bad. And considering that this is now 20. (laughs) 
I am in a tornado warning for this mobile coverage area. Take cover immediately if threatening weather approaches. Joe. You gotta go. No, it's cool. There's no threatening weather right now unless we're in the eye of the storm, which I guess <laughs> is possible. Okay. We'll finish this up. But honestly, yep. this has been one of the weirder recording sessions we've had. Also, the dog keeps sighing. Good luck editing that out. Anyway. <laughs> really sorry. I'm a bad person. Oh, fuck. Now there's a train. <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> uh, I literally feel like I'm living in the Old Testament. Well, I guess except for the train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's less. There's less of those in the Old Testament. Don't put that in a blooper, Joe. That one's embarrassing. Got it. Okay. <laughs> it's absolutely going to be the blooper.